Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Good morning, my name is Bryce Swenson, and today on Students of Surgery, we're going to be interviewing Professor Martin Brand of the Steve Biko Academic Hospital on arterial blood gases. Prof, first of all, what information can we get from arterial blood gases? So arterial blood gases or ABGs allow us to determine how conditions are affecting a patient's respiratory and circulation system as well as metabolic processes in their body. In other words, it measures the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in your blood as well as measuring a patient's acid-base status. Effectively, it is a measure of how well your respiratory, your cardiovascular and your metabolic physiology is doing. And where would we use ABGs? So practically wherever there are critically ill patients, so in the emergency room, in theatres, in intensive care units and high care units, these will be the most common places we use them and also where you'll find blood gas machines. So now that we know what ABGs are, when should we be doing arterial blood gases? So ideally whenever you have a critically ill patient and need to know how the, that patient's physiology is responding to the Ill injury or illness, in ventilated patients so that we can adjust the ventilation settings. They are great adjuncts to assessing a patient's response to resuscitation. So effectively we can measure and aim for our endpoints of resuscitation. Electively we would use it in patients with severe underlying lung disease such as chronic obstructive airways disease to determine what their anesthetic as well as their post-operative needs would be. So this sounds like a really important test, but do arterial blood gases have any complications? So I remember reading a study in which they reported a 0.14% 7-day major complication rate for ABGs. So in other words, it's not a procedure that doesn't have potential complications or problems. So the major complications that can occur when you do a blood gas is arterial embolisms, which results in digital ischemia and possible gangrene, thrombosis, aneurysms, arterial venous fistula, and nerve injuries. And also remember that for patients, these are incredibly painful procedures. So try not to poke around to find the artery. It also doesn't matter from which site you take the sample. The complications with a femoral arterial puncture are exactly the same and not less in incidence than if you take an ar a radial artery puncture. Then without going into too much physiology, what information can we get from arterial blood gas? So the values you should always get are the pH, the PaO2, the PaCO2, bicarbonate, oxygen saturation and base excess and nowadays we also usually get lactate with it and sometimes depending on the calibration of the machine you might get electrolytes and glucose. So the pH represents the amount of hydrogen ions in the blood. We consider a pH of less than 7.0 as acidic and a pH greater than 7.0 as alkaline. Bicarbonate is a compound which binds hydrogen ions in an attempt to maintain homeostasis and it is the most important extracellular fluid buffer that we have and is responsible for up to 75% of our body's ability to buffer metabolic acid-based disturbances. The gases in an ABG are oxygen and carbon dioxide and are a measure of how well oxygen is being absorbed in the alveoli and carbon dioxide being excreted by the body. Hand in hand with this goes oxygen saturation which is a measure of how much oxygen is being carried by the blood's hemoglobin. Base excess is a calculated value 
as opposed to the measured values that we've just gone through, and represents the amount of acid which is required to restore a liter of blood to its normal pH at a PaCO2 of 40 millimeters mercury. It measures all bases, not just bicarbonate. However, as bicarbonate is the greatest buffer, practically interpretations of base excess provides the same information as if one was to interpret the bicarbonate level. A base excess becomes more positive in metabolic alkalosis and more negative in metabolic acidosis. Finally, lactate. Lactate is an end product of metabolic processes of glucose utilization, which we know as anaerobic glycolysis. In well-oxygenated tissues, this lactate is metabolized further, but if tissues are inadequately oxygenated, lactate accumulates and so blood concentration also increases. Hyperlactinemia reflects an imbalance between production and clearance of lactate, and an accumulation of lactate is associated with acidosis. So now that we've looked at a bit of the physiology, what are the normal values we're looking for? So normal arterial uh, blood pH is in the range of 7.38 to 7.42. If we look at bicarbonate, the normal range here is between 22 and 28 milliequivalents per liter. When we look at PaO2 and PaCO2, always check the units because some machines will report it in millimeters mercury and others will report it as uh, kPa or kilopascals. For conversion purposes, one millimeter of mercury is equivalent to 0.133 kPa. So in other words, to get a kPa value, multiply the millimeters of mercury by 0.133. The reason why I've given you this conversion is it's easier to remember one reference range than having to keep two reference ranges in your mind. So the partial pressure of oxygen is usually between 75 and 100 millimeters of mercury, and the partial pressure of carbon dioxide is between 38 and 42 millimeters of mercury. Normal oxygen saturation is between 94 and 100%. A base excess is in the range of minus 2 to positive 2, and the lactate is in the range of 0.5 to 2 millimoles per liter. Just keep in mind that these values may vary slightly between machines and how they've been calibrated. Then when we're looking at the bicarbonate, what is the difference between a standard bicarbonate and the actual bicarbonate? Yeah, this can be very confusing. So an actual bicarbonate is the actual measurement of bicarbonate in that blood sample. The problem with this value though, is that it is severely affected by the PaCO2. If the PaCO2 is high, the actual bicarbonate is also dragged higher and gives you a false higher reading. And the same as, as if the PaCO2 is low, you get a false low reading of the actual bicarbonate. So for clinical purposes, we need to know what the bicarbonate would have been in a situation where the PaCO2 is normal, not necessarily what the PaCO2 is in your specific patient. It is this value that will provide a direct handle on what the metabolic system is doing in your patient. So we look at the standard bicarbonate, which is a calculated value. So how we calculate it is they take the actual bicarbonate and they put it into a ratio with the PaCO2. Most blood gas machines will do this automatically, and the value that you read in the report is a standard bicarbonate. So what is better to use? The standard bicarbonate, the base excess, or the lactate to determine the metabolic acid-base disturbances? So this is actually still controversial, and it's not really set in stone which one you have to use. 
So standard bicarbonate and base excess have been used interchangeably because as I mentioned before, base excess com primarily consists of bicarbonate. So traditionally we have used these as indicators of acid-base disturbances. The techniques used to measure them rely heavily upon a normal electrolyte, water and albumin level in your patient. So in most critically ill or chronically ill patients, these parameters are often not normal and hence may adversely affect the measurement of bicarbonate and base excess. Serum lactate is not affected by these parameters, but granted, it has a very complicated metabolism and can be affected by other factors. Hence, we should really look at all three parameters and all three parameters should have a similar trend for you to be able to believe, believe the value. Personally, I look at the base excess together with the lactate. So that's a lot of theoretical information. How would you approach reading an arterial blood gas? So yeah, we try to keep this simple and I would also say always look at a blood gas in the same, same way so it becomes second nature to you. So in my practice, I would always start by reading the pH value and I look at it and see whether or not it is normal, whether it's acidotic or alkalotic. And if it is normal, I also still look at to see if it's closer to the acidotic or to the alkalotic side of the range. Once I've determined the pH, I then look at the PaCO2. Why I'm doing this is to see whether or not the carbon dioxide is contributing or trying to resolve the problem. So for example, if the pH is low, so in other words the patient is acidotic, and there is a low PaCO2, it means that the respiratory system, so in other words the lungs, are trying to correct the problem. Hence, it must be a metabolic acidosis. With these two parameters, you are able to determine what is your patient's acid-base status. The other values of the ABG confirm this and add information um, for the additional derangements. So the third value that I then look at is the base excess and lactate. I look at these together because, as I said before, you want to see what the trend is with the two of them. If the pH and the PaCO2 led to the conclusion that the problem was primarily a metabolic one, then the base excess will do little more than confirm this for me. And then I would then start using the value as an endpoint of resuscitation. If one has established that the problem is a respiratory one, then the base excess can tell us something of the, about the duration of the problem. So for example, in a respiratory acidosis, the bicarbonate has shown no signs of responding. So in other words, the bicarb is within its normal reference range. The probable explanation is that there has not yet been time to respond to the clinical problem. So in other words, the problem is an acute respiratory acidosis. In a respiratory acidosis, where perhaps the pH is in the lower half of the normal range, a high bicarbonate would indicate a longer time course. So in other words, it's been a chronic problem. So this might be a chronic respiratory acidosis. A respiratory acidosis with a low bicarbonate would indicate a combined respiratory and metabolic acidosis. My next port of call is the PaO2 to see how well the lungs are taking up oxygen into the blood. So can you briefly give us a summary on how we would interpret arterial blood gas? Yeah, of course. So very simply stated, an abnormal blood gas is either due to a metabolic derangement or a respiratory de derangement. And then there is either an acidosis or an alkalosis. So what I mean for this is as follows. For a metabolic acidosis, the pH will be low and the PaCO2 will also be low. For a respiratory acidosis, the pH will still be low, but the PaCO2 will be high. 
Then if we look at alkalosis, so for a metabolic alkalosis, the pH will be high and the PaCO2 will also be high. For a respiratory alkalosis, the pH will be high and the PaCO2 will be low. So then, what is the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 respiratory failure? So a type 1 respiratory failure occurs when there is an actual pulmonary or lung disease that results in the disruption of the ventilation perfusion matching system in the lungs. So oxygen is delivered to the alveoli, but the oxygen is not being absorbed into the blood. However, provided that overall ventilation is normal, PaCO2 can still be maintained. So in other words, your CO2 is being offloaded from the blood. So when the PaO2 is low and the PaCO2 is normal, type 1 respiratory failure is present and as such it really implies that there is an actual lung or pulmonary disease present in that patient. For type 2 respiratory failure, there is a ventilation problem. In other words, there's a problem with pumping the air in and out of the lungs. When underventilation occurs, for whatever reason, so be it maybe muscular weakness or an overdose of certain drugs such as opiates, the PaCO2 will increase, which is actually the definition of underventilation. And the PaO2 must also decrease, even if the lungs are completely normal. So type 2 respiratory failure results from underventilation, which can occur even in the context of healthy lungs. So we've spoken a lot about arterial blood gases, but I've also heard about venous blood gases. Can you explain the difference between the two to us, please? So an arterial blood gas is taken from an artery and can be very painful for the patient and also difficult for you to get sometimes. Whereas a venous blood sample is obtained from veins and often veins are far more easily accessible and are also not pain, usually painful for a patient. In general, there's very little difference uh, between these two samples, especially when we look at the pH, the CO2 values, as well as the bicarbonate, the base excess and the lactate levels. Where the major difference is between an ABG and a VBG is in the oxygen content of the two samples and these differ widely. An ABG is usually oxygen saturated and a VBG obviously has the oxygen has been offloaded in the, in the tissues. So in other words, a normal venous pH, PCO2 and base excess can rule out a severe acid-base disturbance, but it cannot give you any information about a patient's ventilation. Then I've heard you talk about a central venous oxygen saturation for the man management of hypotensive patients. What is this? So effectively this is a VBG, but it's a VBG that we take from a central venous line. And these central venous lines are usually either subclavian or internal jugular veins, where the tip of the CVP is sitting just above the right atrium. The oxygen saturation on this blood gas is called a central venous oxygen saturation and is abbreviated to SCVO2. This value represents oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, as well as the cardiac output of a patient. Some people call it a poor man's cardiac output monitor. So a normal value is 70%. So in other words, what's happening in a normal patient is that between 30 and 20% of your oxygen is actually being offloaded in the sinusoids and being used for the patient's normal metabolism. We use this value in patients who are hypertensive to guide fluid management. The only situation where we cannot use this accurately is in a patient who is known to have chronic cardiac failure, where you get false low values. So in a patient with hypotension, a value less than 70% 
implies that there's stagnation of blood in the capillary beds and that the patient will be fluid responsive. In other words, you can give them a fluid bolus. However, if the patient is hypotensive, but their SCVO2 value is greater than 70%, it means that the patient is fluid replete. So in other words, they're not actually hypovolemic. They just have a hypodynamic circulation so that the oxygen cannot be extracted in the capillary beds. And hence, they should not be given intravenous fluid boluses, but rather they should be started on inotropes. And probably the most common clinical scenario that where we have this occurring is in patients who've got septic shock. So now that we know the difference between a venous and an arterial blood gas, how do we pick which one we want to use on a patient? Yeah, that's a good question. So actually, the vast majority of patients that you want to know what's going on in their physiology, a VBG will be adequate. As I mentioned, the only real reading that is significantly different between an ABG and a VBG is the oxygen value. Where I would always use an ABG is a patient where you're worried about their ventilation and you need to know whether or not they are saturating uh, sufficiently or they're taking up enough oxygen through their lungs. If ventilation is not a major concern, then there's no reason why one can't do a VBG. So in other words, the majority of patients that you're worried about their acid-base status, a VBG is more than adequate. Thank you so much, Prof. That makes so much more sense. Do you have any concluding remarks for our students? So I think just keep it simple. When it comes to measuring blood gases, keep in mind, do you need it and what are you going to use it for? And then decide whether or not you need to use a venous blood gas or if you really do need an arterial blood gas. Uh, I must say I'm a great fan of using your central venous oxygen saturation, so keep that trick in mind where you do a blood, a blood gas off a, a central line. And when it comes to reading the results of, an, of, a, of a blood gas, apply the same approach. Start with the pH, go to the PCO2, decide there, is it a respiratory or metabolic problem? How is it being compensated? And is the patient alkalotic or acidotic? Then move on to the base excess in lactate and then finish off with your oxygen value if it is an ABG. You don't need to go there, obviously, if it's a VBG. Thank you so much, Prof. I think that information is going to make it much easier for us to approach blood gases when you're in the woods. Cool. My pleasure. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.